0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Martian Media Montage, episode 72. Where I'm going to be talking Love and Bullets, Red Dawn, Bloody Birthday, Rookie of the Year, Devil in a Blue Dress, Left 4 Dead 1 and 2, Yoshi's Island DS, and Mario Rabbit Sparks of Hope. Got it in 12 seconds. Nice. New record. Bam, bam, bam. I'm just kidding. It doesn't really matter. There's no <laughs> record. I'm not really that fast at talking. But uh, before I decide to get into these five films, I decided to uh, <clears throat> play uh, Left for Dead 1 and 2 because of just straight up nostalgia. And I just wanted a break from typical rpgs or platformers or whatever and i knew it was just going to be an enjoyable amount of fun and i knew it was going to be relatively quick to play because uh, left for dead one only has about five stages and i mean i i played it solo um i've definitely beaten one and two co-op with my buddy shane back in the day like when we were in high school we used to get out of class and play one and two at his house And, and then i would go home and pretty much rinse and repeat kind of thing but uh Still is a lot of fun. Made by Valve. Same guys who did, you know, uh, Portal and uh, Counter-Strike, Half-Life, all that stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's just a run-and-gun, fun zombie shooter, you know. I, I'm very happy with it. They still hold up one and two. One's obviously a little longer than two. Two, I believe, is only four stages. Um, the interface is relatively the same. Why is to change your weapon. Left trigger is... Melee, I expected B to be Melee, kind of like in the same uh, controller scheme as uh, Halo, but it's a little different. Still fun. Uh, I believe B was Reload, X was to like interact with objects, and uh, A is Jump, if I'm not mistaken, then obviously Left Analog to move, Right Analog. Uh, if you get the Sniper Rifle, you can click down and then uh, zoom in. When there's only one zoom, that's fine. But uh, yeah, both really fun games. They still hold up. I'm going to uh, give them to my uh, cousin because I'm giving him one of my old uh, 360 Slims that I have. Apparently, I have two 360 slims. One is an R2-D2 model, which I'm keeping. I'm giving him the plain black one. It still works. And then I have an Xbox 360 Elite. I stumble upon these things, and if they're cheap, I'm going to pick them up. You know, I think I paid maybe $10 for one and then maybe $60 for the R2-D2 one, and I've seen that thing go for anywhere between like $100 to $200 online. So I was like, all right, $60, I'm taking it. Anyway, and then uh, I know I've talked to you guys a little bit about Yoshi's Island DS. Uh, I beat it. It's not the same boss at the end compared to the one in super nintendo but you do play baby bowser for a minute and then you play bowser for a minute and then you play a larger version of bowser uh, at the end so it's three different bosses but uh yeah nothing compares to the uh original ending uh boss battle with uh the giant bowser in the mario uh what is it super mario world 2 yoshi's island on super nintendo love that boss battle but i mean this was still a really really fun addition to that particularly, uh, platforming game. Nonetheless, I'm glad that I paid, or uh, paid, yeah, I paid it. Well, I did pay for it. It was like 15 bucks at a game store, but I'm glad I played it and beat it. I died a couple times on many different levels, but, uh, it's definitely a good entry within the franchise. I loved it. Um, and then I still have, uh, Ghostbusters and Rage to finish. And then, uh, I don't know, I'll probably get back into some, uh, old RPGs or something, probably. I was gonna say, I'm about to go, uh, to my folks this weekend and go pick up my, uh, PS3, which has a bunch of PS1 store games on there, uh, like Legend of Dragoon, Symphony of the Night, all that stuff, bunch of shooters too, shmups. And then, uh, they also have all of my, uh, my mini consoles that I have hacked and I can't wait to bust those back out and play back into those again. But, uh, that's it for now. I don't really have any recent pickups. I messaged a guy on a, a Facebook marketplace. He had, uh, the Daily Planet, um, Superman, like, What do you want to call it? I guess uh, not necessarily a diorama, but, you know, it's it's like his layer, I guess, if you will. I'm really not even that big of a comic book guy, but I was like, dude, it's free and it's probably like two or three feet tall and maybe like a foot or two wide. He has that. And then he has the back cave kind of like diorama, like all plastic, you know, like probably from probably from early to mid 90s, both of those. And he hasn't said anything to me. I'm like, dude, I I leave for work in like an hour. I was like, I can come by and get him like now. But uh, (laughs) so I'll uh, I'll let you guys know if anything happens with that. But, uh, and that's what I've been playing. No recent pickups. I mean, those things that I just mentioned were free, so I hope I can pick those up. Uh, I've stumbled across a couple of, uh, decently priced, uh, CRT TVs, which I would like to also get. So that way I can play, uh, some of my Sega Genesis menacer, uh, gun games like Terminator two, the, uh, arcade game and so forth. Otherwise, yeah, they don't work on flat screens. I'm sure those of you who play already probably know that, but, uh, yeah. All right, let's get into it. I'm going to be talking these five movies now. Episode 72, let's go. All right, guys, I'm going to be talking to you guys about Love and Bullets. An Arizona cop is sent to Switzerland to bring in the girlfriend of a dangerous mobster so she can testify against him. The mobster sends someone to his posse of assassins. That's essentially the plot in a nutshell. Uh, Directed by Stuart Rosenberg and John Huston, Stuart Rosenberg, known for Cool Hand Luke with Paul Newman, 1967, Solid Film, and the Amityville Horror, 1979 with uh, Josh Brolin. Houston did Treasure of Sierra Madre with uh, Humphrey Bogart in 1948 and then worked on Chinatown with uh, Jack Nicholson in 1974, another solid film. So it it shows because, I mean, the, the film is decent. Uh, it, it should have been a little more promising, but overall it was all right. It, it's not necessarily in the grand scheme of things like Death Wish for that matter, which is a much better film in my opinion. Uh, starring the iconic Charles Bronson, hence the uh, Death Wish reference, uh, Rod Steger. Who's the uh, one of the villains, uh, and he dies at the end, super cool uh, ending, and uh, Jill Ireland, who was actually his wife at the time, who uh, plays alongside him in this, <clears throat> Labels action crime drama, which fix it perfectly. Uh, one tagline is from the writer of Death Wish on the Finland-made DVD of this film. That's kind of cool. It's not really a tagline. It's more or less just like a reference. Uh, Trivially, Bronson's salary at the time was $1.5 million US, not including his back-end profit from the box office gross and the cost for his wife's entourage of about a dozen people, which was the actress Jill Ireland at the time, who he worked alongside with, which I mentioned. In the UK release, the scene where uh, Bronson builds a blowpipe uh, in a hotel room, he just grabs random items and decides to make like a blow dart. Uh, was removed for fear that it might inspire copycat actions where he uses hotel accessories to make a blow dart. At the end, excuse me, at the time in British censorship, uh, films that showed nunchucks were given an 18-plus class rating certificate. So just like how I've mentioned, you know, previous episodes before ago, that uh, that's why when uh, Secret of the Us made it over there, the uh, second film within the Ninja Turtle franchise, they uh, got rid of the nunchucks and used sausages in order to not receive the 18-plus rating. The character Joe Bomposa, played by Rod Steiger, was based on an actual real-life Chicago gangster who stuttered, which makes sense because uh, I was wondering why when you watch this film he has a speech impediment, and now I know because it's a real-life portrayal. Uh, it was released in March 1979 in the UK, filmed in Camelback Mountain, Arizona. According to Wikipedia, based on the screenplay by Wendell Mays and John Melson. Filming then called, at the time, Love and Bullets, Charlie, that was the actual original title and they got rid of the Charlie, was to begin in Managua, Nicaragua on November 3rd, 1977. But uh, Houston <clears throat> had fallen ill and was replaced by Stuart Rosenberg to direct. Roger Ebert actually gave it one out of four stars and said that it is hopelessly confused hodgepodge of chases, killings, meetings and separations and overacted scenes by Rod Steger, alternating with underacted scenes by Charles Bronson. All texture and no plot, not so hot for a thriller. Little dialogue, begin to suspect it's deliberate. Wondering, was the uh wordage in the film kept to a minimum to make it easier to dub for the national market? Uh most of the time I agree or and or well, I can't necessarily say I agree. I usually disagree, and I'm kinda like 50-50 on this because yeah, it was the plot was a little loose, it didn't really make too much sense. There's enough action though to keep you entertained. And it's true, there really wasn't very much dialogue and in certain scenes they're either over and or underacted. So he's he's right in that regard. Uh, Siskel, his cohort, had this to say. Two out of four stars. A dull chase film for Swiss ski resorts, and it would have improved vastly if it contained subtitles identifying the lodges Bronson occupied. I don't think that's necessarily (laughs) that important, literally just to tell you what hotel he's staying in, what room he's staying in, and so forth. That doesn't that doesn't matter you know, uh, hang on a second. Technical difficulties. Give me a second. Where was I? Okay. There we go. That was weird. All right. So I, I mean, I guess, sure. Thanks. Uh, Gene Siskel. Uh, I side a little more with Ebert on this one, despite him not liking it overall. I enjoyed it for what it was and not having a fluid plot over slash but decent action for what it's worth. As I stated in order to entertain the viewer ship and continue watching. It is free on YouTube. It has ads, maybe every 15, 20 minutes. The VHS, I looked into it, is anywhere between seven to $20. And it's one of those weird uh, clam cases. It's, it must be one of those kind of hard to find VHSs, is my guess. And if you want it on DVD, I looked into it. It's about nine to $12 and a double pack. That seems some sort of an obscurity piece of, uh, you know, film history to own. I'd I'd still say, give it a watch. Tell me what you think. Uh, And if I were to rank it, Out of, I'm just gonna draw uh, maybe three random uh, Charles Bronson films Uh, Dirty Dozen, Death Wish, and this. I would probably watch those in that particular order, ranking uh, Dirty Dozen with uh, Lee Marvin and uh, Donald Sutherland. It's a really cool uh, war uh, film. I mean, he's also in The Great Escape too, but I mean, I I didn't mention that film. Well, I can now, right? I would watch, yes, Dirty Dozen, and then I would watch Death Wish, and then I would watch this. Um, It's okay, it's all right. In the grand scheme of things, there's better films that I feel as if he's done, but I'm glad I watched it nonetheless. All right, next film. All right, I'm talking to you guys about Red Dawn, 1984. The tagline is on the cover when you click on the IMDB cover for the poster. It says, in our time, no foreign army has ever occupied American soil. Ellipsis, until now. That's a banger. I like it. PG-13, it is one of the first films to achieve this particular rating alongside uh, Gremlins at the time and the honorable mention Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Labeled as action-drama-thriller, I'd even put War in there as well. I don't know why it's not in there. It should be. Directed by John Milius, who wrote Apocalypse Now in 1979, the Coppola film, and Conan and the Barbarian in 1982, as well as Jeremiah Johnson, a Mountain Man film with uh, Robert Redford in 1972. Also really great uh, film. All three of those are phenomenal. This one is no slog either. I have the DVD. I picked it up at a thrift store a while back for cheap. I've been sitting on it, and I'm glad that I finally watched it and enjoyed this film. Uh, according to IMDb, it has a 6.3 out of 60,000 reviews. I think it deserves at least a 7 in my book. It was, it was great. I'm glad that I watched it. Uh, starring Mr. Patrick Swayze, Charlie Sheen, Leia Thompson before she was the mom in Back to the Future, Harry Dean Stanton as Charlie and Patrick's dad at the encampment for prisoners. Very uh, short sequence, but it's still pretty powerful got a star-studded cast. It's about the dawn of World War III in the West Mountains of America, a group of teens band together to defend their town and country from invading Soviet forces. Another tagline that I uh, stumbled upon is that in America, heroes aren't raised, they are orphaned, which is pretty dark, but true to the nature of the film overall, and that one works just as well. Uh, Trivially, five of 36 paratroopers in the beginning segment were blown off course by a mile during filming, One was actually stuck in a tree and he had to convince locals that he was not an enemy soldier. That's pretty crazy. Uh, Soviet and Cuban invasion from Mexico was based on CIA war college studies of the U.S. weakness at the time. So that's basically the premise of the film. Uh, Swayze got frostbite during filming and years later he said it still felt like someone was shoving toothpicks up his fingernails when he got cold. Yikes. Uh, Green Berets also helped the actors with boot camp training for the film, which is pretty cool. It released August 10th, 1984, also known as Ten Soldiers, my mom's birthday, and my buddy uh, Jimenez's birthday. I will never forget that. Filmed in Johnson, Mesa, New Mexico, on a budget of $17 million, it grossed $38 million, grossed also $8 million in two days just in that weekend. That's a lot for the time, I'm sure. According to Wikipedia, it is the first to achieve the PG-13 rating, as I mentioned a little earlier, under the new rating system introduced July of that year in eighty four. Written by Kevin Reynolds, Ten Children Take to the Hills, hence the alternate title, Ten Soldiers. Producer Peter Bart remembers the pitch for the film as a sharply written anti-war film, sort of a of the Flies for the time. Uh, production-wise, an old Safeway grocery store was converted to a soundstage and used for several scenes in the film. Before starting work on the film, the cast underwent eight-week military training and built special combat vehicles in one of the areas in my hometown, Newhall, California. A T-72 tank... Uh, precise replica just down the street from where I used to live. Funny that while it was being carted around L.A., two CIA officers followed it to the studio and wanted to know where it came from. Leah Thompson also said that the original cut featured a love scene between her and Powers Booth, which I believe is uh, Patrick Swayze's character, but it was cut out after previews because of the age difference. She stated it was the main reason why she took the part, and it was a great scene. That's pretty crazy, too. You go, Mrs. McFly. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has 52%. Of course, it's a uh, low rating. Yeah, yeah. Boo. VHS uh, released 1985 and Betamax as well as Laserdisc. And in 1998, uh, DVD was released. I enjoyed it. I'm glad that I own it and watched it. It's a really, really cool uh, I uh, 80s film that I don't really feel like it's talked about a lot. You know, and I mentioned it to my buddy Austin. I mentioned it to buddies at work. And they're like, oh, yeah, man, where have you been? You got to watch this. And I'm like, well... I did. And yeah, I missed out. So there you have it. All right. On to the next film. I'm going to be talking to you guys now about Bloody Birthday. I tried to watch a little more than just horror this episode, but for some reason I was hankering for this one, having seen it on In Search of Darkness. And uh, I was like, all right, I got to sit down and watch this. Uh, it is a 1981 horror film rated r of course because it's horror couldn't help myself as i stated i've been trying to watch other stuff but this one caught my eye it is an hour and 25 minutes tagline on the cover which uh it's a black cover and it has a birthday cake with like bloody fingers and uh, on the fingernails there's like candles kind of cool on the cover it says the nightmare begins with the kids next door and yeah yeah that that works has a 5.7 out of 5,300 reviews. Uh, I'd say I'd at least give it a 6. It's It was cool. Different. Labeled as a horror thriller, just picture the Bad Seed monetized with triplets basically 20 years after the fact when the Bad Seed came out. And then obviously, what, 10 years later, then uh, The Good Son came out with Macaulay Culkin. So it's almost like every 10 to 20 years, a similar kind of film to these types, I guess, came out then, I guess, if you think about it. It's about three kids that are born during a solar eclipse, and 10 years later, they begin to murder the people around them and their family members. Directed by Ed Hunt. I don't know any of his other films. I I looked it up via uh, filmography, and I was like, I can't recognize any of these. But it does star Buddy from just one of the guys who's the younger brother to the main protagonist female in that film, uh, Mr. Billy Jane as Curtis. And I love that movie. And this movie's pretty cool as well, but I, I think I'm a little more prone to a happy birthday to me in that regard to, I guess, a birthday horror film, that skewer scene, man. And I just love the ending too of a happy birthday to me. But uh, anyway, some decent kills, light on the gore and light on the nudity as well. But this film is cool for the time because you don't expect deranged kids and they play on that role as well as acting if they're innocent. Like one uh, guy, Curtis, you know, there's a bunch of birthday cakes around in the kitchen and he has a birthday party in the backyard And on the cake, he uh, decides to put like ant poison and one of the uh, babysitters sees it and he plays on that role like, I didn't do anything wrong. You didn't see anything. You know, he sticks his tongue out, at her, you know, and she looks like she's the crazy one, even though clearly he's a killer. Yeah, pretty cool. Trivially, Lori Lethen, the babysitter in the end, did all of her own stunts running around and being chased. She said that she had a lot of fun doing that and she's glad that she was able to be a part of that. So that's pretty cool. The film was actually shelved for five years after being shot, and it was confirmed that it was shot in early 1980 and then released the following year. Joyce, an actress, consults Linda Goodman's Sun Signs book, but none of the material that she reads is actually in that book, so that's kind of funny. The murder sequences were originally shot to be a little more graphic, but stronger footage was edited out of the final cut in order to achieve the art rating. And the German poster, the same house from uh, Salem's Lot, the uh, Stephen King miniseries, is actually used. So that's pretty cool, too. An early title was actually to be called Happy Birthday, but the title was changed to avoid confusion with the 1981 uh, same-year film Happy Birthday to Me to be released a month after this film. Uh, It just sounds like that happened a lot in, like, the 80s, especially with, like, what was it, like, Killer Party and – what else did I just recently watch? Yeah, you know, and I did an episode on – but, yeah, anyway, I mean – oh, no, it was – um, there was April Fool's Day, yeah, it was April Fool's, and then um, yeah, that's what it was. Uh, released April twenty eighth, nineteen eighty one, also known as Creeps, apparently. And then there's obviously a, you know the Creepazoids and all that and so forth. But anyway, filmed in Glendale, California, big surprise. I mean, a lot of those movies were filmed out there, according to Wikipedia. It received a limited theater release, then later released on VHS by Prism Entertainment in eighty six, and then in nineteen ninety as well. Then, DVD in 2003. Took a long hiatus before DVD. Rotten Tomatoes, amazingly, enough gives it 71% out of, I believe, seven reviewers, which is next to nothing. Metacritic, 49%. Boo. I, I usually use Metacritic for video games, uh, personally. I enjoyed this crazy little slashing gem, and I highly recommend it if you want a VHS copy. You're looking at around $25 to $50. Sort of pricey, but it's a really cool obscurity uh, kind of piece of thing, or a piece of uh, history, I guess, to obtain. About 10 to $15 uh, via DVD. Go watch it regardless. It's a classic, although I admit, as I stated, I feel like I'm a little more partial to Happy Birthday to Me uh, more so. I'm glad I watched it, though, uh, nonetheless. Uh, and if I were going to rank it between this and Happy I would still say probably, yeah, watch Happy Birthday to Me and then this. Totally. Anyway, solid film. Go watch uh, this and uh, probably the next film. All right, moving on. All right, well, kind of at the height of a uh, baseball season, I decided to watch a uh, Rookie of the Year because I've never seen it. I Had it mentioned to me by my uh, buddy Austin. I mean, I've definitely seen the cover in passing. I just I never decided to give it a watch, and I'm glad that I finally did. And it's relatively, I would say, on par with The Sandlot. Granted, yes, I'm more partial to The Sandlot, and it did come out three months prior to this film as well. I believe Sandlot came out in May, and this one came out. Uh, Like July or something, yeah, July. So uh, April, okay. So April and then July. Anyway, nineteen ninety three, rookie of the year. A film released the same year, but as I stated, three months uh, after The Sandlot already was uh, out, and then it went under the radar for me. I'm still more partial to the other film, but I had a good time with this one regardless. It has a six point one out of thirty thousand reviews according to IMDb. A comedy, family, fantasy film. Which, yeah, that works because, of course, it it fantasizes the idea of a kid um, being able to play for the Major League uh, Baseball team. So pretty cool. About an accident that gives a boy an innate pitching arm, he becomes a Major League pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. Directed by Daniel Stern, Marv from The Home Alone, the narrator for Wonder Years, and stars in the classic uh, obscure, I guess, creature feature sci-fi horror film Chud from the 80s, which I love that film. Also featuring John Hurd, who was also in Home Alone. Uh, Starring Thomas Ian Nicholas from uh, American Pie. Uh, He was uh, Tara Reid's boyfriend. I can't remember his name in the film for the life of me. Gary Busey, as well as in this from uh, Point Break and as well as Big Wednesday. Just realized he was in two surfing films. And then uh, he obviously plays uh, Buddy Holly, I believe, in the 70s or maybe early 80s. That's a cool film, too. John Candy as the baseball announcer uh, from National Lampoon's Vacation is also in this. I mean, Uncle Buck and also in Home Alone, you know, playing polka, 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 right? So, I mean, there's a little little bit of a theme kind of going on here, right? It's got a great cast and it was a good word or uh, wow. Fucking name! there's your first one. Can't speak English. So I'm like, Ugh, uh, uh. it was a good watch worth it totally to uh, watch at any time. Uh, I just think it was overshadowed still at the time by uh, the Sandlot. The Sandlot was huge. Uh, Eddie Bracken as Bob Carson, the owner of the team, also in Home Alone 2, you know, who plays Mr. Duncan with the Turtle Dubs and he's also a Roy Wally in uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. the end in National Lampoon's Vacation where (laughs) fucking uh, Clark's like, you know, wouldn't you break into an amusement park for your kids too, Mr. Wally? No. Like, (laughs) uh, classic. Tagline is, a kid with an impossible dream, all he needed was a lucky break. I like the joke. Good stuff. I like it. Because obviously he breaks his arm and he's able to pitch. Yeah. Trivially, John Candy, the radio broadcaster, is actually uncredited. His role isn't mentioned in the credits because he was originally, or excuse me, he was not originally cast to be in the film. And this is the only film that Daniel Stern has directed in his uh, repertoire of, you know, uh, being involved with directing. Thomas Ian Nicholas threw the first pitch at many Cubs games during the 2015 National League Champs uh, game. They faced the Mets, as they did in the film. He attended Game 4 in a Rowan Gartner. Uh, number one jersey similar to the one that he wore in the film and the cubs lost eight to three knocking them out of the postseason regardless of the loss that's still a pretty cool homage that he was like you know what i'm gonna wear this fucking jersey so cool there's a scene where amy morton henry's mother celebrates henry's scoring run after being walked she hits her head on the lamp around 58 minutes in and she didn't mean to and was hurt and when she sits down it she mutters oh shit which is actually dubbed out of the audio, but you can still read her lips. So that's also kind of a little uh, Easter egg there. Released July 7th of 1993. Filmed in Westmont, Illinois. The budget was $10 million and it grossed $53 million. So it was still a successful film. As I stated, I think perhaps nostalgia is taken over me for the love of the other film. Granted, they're both great. <clears throat> Filmed also at Wrigley Field and O'Hare Airport, as well as Comiskey Park against the Dodgers. Praised by Ebert, three out of four stars. Not much really else on this film brings you back though regardless to a better time with family comedies and sports films you know, like uh, Little Giants and so forth. Worth a watch in my book and I'm sorry that it took me 30 years to get around to watching it. But I'm glad that I did and I'm glad – yeah, I, I enjoyed it. So wor- worth a watch I would stay, uh, stay. Yep, there's your second one. Fuck, can't speak English. Uh, get, get around to it and watch it if you haven't or if you have seen it and you haven't watched it in a while. Pfft, shit, watch it again. It's awesome. All right, next film. All right, going to close out today's episode with this film, *Devil in a Blue Dress*, 1995. Uh, I have a Criterion Collection uh, version of it. Apparently, um, the it basically just picture Maltese Falcon. If you've seen it with Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre meets a uh, Chinatown with Jack Nicholson in the 1990s, I loved it. It's definitely a neo. mystery noir film and I thought it was really cool I'm glad that I finally watched it I had it mentioned to me by a buddy of mine at work years ago and we were talking films he's like you've never seen that movie and I was like no and I finally watched it and I'm glad that I did it is an hour and 42 minutes has a 6.8 out of 22,000 I'd give it at least a 7 I thought it was awesome So many twists and turns, uh, plot, character development, labeled as a crime drama mystery. And it's about an African-American who is hired to find a woman and gets mixed up in a murderous political scandal. And that's true because at first he's just like looking for work. He's like, you know, I returned from the war. I have a mortgage on a house and I basically need money. And it just keeps getting worse and worse for him. Excuse me. Um, Directed by Carl Franklin, who also did One False Move in 1992, three years prior, which I'll have to hunt down and watch that one. And then he also did a Out of Time with Denzel in that 2003. Uh, those are the two that I uh, definitely noticed that he did. And I'm like, all right, I got to watch those. Uh, starring Denzel Washington as uh, Ezekiel Rollins, also known as Easy. Uh, Tom Sizemore as basically, a, I guess, a lackey slash sort of the villain in this movie. Not like the main villain, though. Uh, Jennifer Beals as Daphne, the girl whom he is uh, looking for. And Don Cheadle uh, plays Mouse Alexander, also does... A great job in this film, and uh, he's Denzel's partner, uh, more or less. The tagline is, <clears throat> Private Detective Easy Rollins has been caught on the wrong side of the most dangerous secret in town. That's a pretty cool tagline. That works for me. Um, trivially, ABC, the uh, TV channel uh, syndicate, was actually planning on a pilot for a TV show based on the film in 98, three years later. Uh, the movie marquee within the film advertises a betrayal of Oscar M- Miko, Micah, I'm not quite sure to pronounce that who was the first African American to produce a full-length film so that's a pretty cool nod to that Denzel and Jennifer would later work on Book of Eli in 2009 uh, where Denzel and Don Cheadle were in flight together in 2012 3 years later David Allen Greer trivially also auditioned for the uh, mouse role which uh, Cheadle uh, actually obviously got Released September 29th, 1995. Filmed in L.A. Big surprise. I mean, it takes place. You, you can you can just tell. Uh, budget was $27 million. It grossed $16 million, so apparently it flopped by $11 million. But I still loved it, and it sounds like uh, critics did too, to an extent. According to Wikipedia, it received positive reviews, and many praised John Cheadle's performance. I can see why, because he does steal many of the scenes, and he was awesome through the entirety of the film. He was just... I don't know, kind of ruthless and he does a great job. I I loved it. You know, there was just so many quirky remarks between him and Don or excuse me, between him and Denzel, you know, and obviously there's racial epithets for the time it was just, you know, written supposed to be in the forties. Not only do they say, it, you know, obviously the white people say it to them derogatory, but it was just, it's a sign of the times. It's a part of the film, you know, it's going off 30 years old now, 28 to be exact. Uh, Production wise, a scene where John, or excuse me, a scene where, uh, well, there it is, your your fucking third one for the uh, uh, episode. Jennifer Beals' character and Denzel are apparently in a love scene that was actually cut and it was deemed not necessary by the director Carl Franklin to convey the story. Don Cheadle originally didn't want to play Mouse because he thought he was too young for it, and sure, whatever, I mean, I'm glad that he did because he was probably one of my favorite characters in the film. Uh, VHS was released a year later, April of 96, as well as Laserdisc and then DVD in 1999. Roger Ebert didn't necessarily like the story, but he liked the look and the tone overall. And he's right and wrong in that regard, because the story, it gets a little, it's a little loosey-goosey here and there, but it it still manages to pull you in with its look and tone of the film overall. It's like a black comedy, not in regards to the color of the skin, but okay, a dark comedy. How about, it's like, yeah, it's like a, it's almost like a Coen Brothers movie meets like a mystery neo-noir, and it, it works. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was solid. I'm glad that I watched it. I haven't seen a mystery noir film in a while, and I loved it. All right. Now, before I close, I actually saw this on uh, Microsoft News. Uh, they're doing a ranking of 25 best horror villains of all time. I'm just going to go in order and look at the pictures. Looks like they ranked number one, Michael. Okay, sure. I We'll just go with I agree or disagree with their particular order. Michael, I can see it. Him being number one, he's probably one of the most iconic, probably really kind of started the uh, slasher craze. I mean, obviously there was Psycho, then there was Peeping Tom in uh, 1960, respectively, and then '74 is Black Christmas, which definitely goes under the radar for a lot of people, I feel. But Michael, I, I can see Michael Myers being uh, number one, sure. Number two, uh, Candyman from the 90s. Eh, I disagree with that, but I liked the new one regardless. Uh, let's move on. Three, Nosferatu. Yeah. I mean, I can see it having a huge impact. I mean, you know, and then they made the, uh, what John Malkovich film where he, uh, it's basically like, what is it? Shadows of the Vampire or something like that behind the scenes of like Nosferatu. I don't think he deserves to be on this list, but sure. I I wouldn't put him at number three if he were on a list, that's for sure. Number four, the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man's pretty cool. Same thing. I don't think I'd put it on this list. I, I, I disagree, but I, I definitely enjoy the Invisible Man, you know, and then obviously, uh, What, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man and all that stuff? I mean, I I have the entire box set. It it is cool, but I wouldn't put it on a slasher list. Uh, Okay, Patrick Bateman, sure. From American Psycho, yeah. Yeah, okay. He definitely deserves to be on this list. Uh, Number five, I disagree with that, but, you know, Brett Easton Ellis' novel was great. I loved it. All right. Uh, Carrie, sure. Sissy Spacek, I wouldn't put her as a fucking slasher, but... Whatever, I don't know why she's number six. I wouldn't even put her on this list either. I already disagree with this list, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, Boris Karloff is the mummy. I wouldn't consider him a slasher, but he was iconic, man. You know, it inspired the whole horror punk, everything. Just, yeah, okay, Boris Karloff is great. I wouldn't put him on this list, though. Jigsaw, same thing, dude. I was so over after the second Saw. I don't know why, whatever, fine. I don't know why he's number eight. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even put him on this list either. Ghostface, I can see the impact, I'm just not really a big scream guy, I I feel like there's better horror films, The Mask is iconic, he was obviously in the scary movie spoof parody, which I love too, but I wouldn't put him on this list, but whatever, what else we got here, Uh, Phantom of the Opera, Lon Chaney, sure, same thing, I mean, it's great, it it still holds up for a silent film in 1925, I wouldn't put him on this list, I'm really disappointed with this list, (laughs) I know it's obviously subjective and it's biased, but uh, uh Yeah, of course. Reagan. I wouldn't put her on a slasher list either. 1973's The Exorcist, of course. But whatever. Uh, Jack Torrance, of course. Jack Nicholson's character from The Shining. Yeah, he definitely deserves to be on this list. Number 12. Eh, yeah, sure. You know, middle of the way through. Why not? Damien from The Omen. Uh, Okay. Is this a slasher list or is this just – oh, no. This is 25. OK. I read it wrong. It's just 25 best horror films of all time. It's not a slasher list. <laughs> well, excuse me. I'm halfway through and I can't even read what a computer has to say. And it's perfect English. It's not even something that I wrote. Let me get my script here out of the way. Jeez. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The Omen films are pretty cool. You kind of have to be in the right set of uh, mind in order to uh, not necessarily enjoy but just indulge because it's just they're – they're pretty dark but they're cool. Norman Bates, of course, Tony Perkins, uh, 1960s classic, Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece, and then obviously the other films he did, uh, Psycho, what, two and three, I believe he also directed and starred in, and uh, sure, yeah, I could definitely see that on this list. What else we got here? The Wolfman, sure, another Lon Chaney uh, film, but it's Lon Chaney Jr., Sr. was Phantom of the Opera. Uh, yeah, I okay, now that I <laughs> noticed that it's just 25 best horror villains of all time, I mean, yeah, I, I could see the impact you know after going on fucking 80 years of this uh, well 82 to be exact according to this film yeah sure Jaws of course yeah the very first summer blockbuster 1975 Steven Spielberg's second film after uh the duel or I, I think it's just called duel duel's pretty cool They actually use the same soundboard uh when the truck goes over the cliff in the uh shark they use it in um when uh he gets blown up at the end pretty cool Pennywise, they always use the fucking Bill Skarsgård shit, dude. I want to see Tim Curry. I'm glad that they mentioned Tim Curry in the little synopsis, but it's Bill Ah. over it. I'm so over it. Hannibal Lecter, of course. Silence of the Lambs, Red Dragon, uh, Hannibal Rising, all of that, of course. Leatherface, okay. I'm glad that he got his uh, mention. Thank you, Gunnar Hansen. I loved you, Mosquito, and I'm glad that that was your favorite film to work in, which I enjoyed that film a lot too. So, yeah, I'm glad Leatherface made this list. Uh, pinhead. Sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, you know, it's Clive Barker's like masterpiece from the eighties, you know, uh, uh, of course there's no surprise that Hellraiser made this list. I'm at number 20, number 21. Chucky. Of course he has a huge impact. He's everywhere now. Personally, I'm more partial to probably the first two. I enjoy three for what it is, but yeah, the first two are probably my favorite child's play films. Michael, uh, maybe Michael was just the cover on the first. I'm not sure if it's any particular, uh, numerical order. But they have uh, another picture of Michael Myers here. I'll just skip over that. Of course, Freddy Krueger's on this list, number 23. Why not? Robert Englund did such a great job. I get it. Thank you for putting Jason on here, number 24 of 26. I don't know, like I said, if it's in a particular numerical order, but I'm glad that he's on this list nonetheless. I hope he's not number 24 because he's probably my favorite still. Frankenstein, of course, uh, the original monster. Uh, yeah, Boris Karloff, of course. Uh, I put Boris Karloff's Frankenstein over Mummy all day, every day. But, yeah, I mean, they're both great in their own right. And, of course, Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Um, I can see that. And that's the last one. So there you have it, episode 72. Films, games I'm playing. Uh, and I went over a, uh, (laughs) 25 best horror villains of all time, apparently. I thought it was a slasher list, but it wasn't. All right, I gotta get going to work. Uh, Everybody enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, I'll see you next time.